Amen. Great. Well, it's good to be with you again this morning. Uh, for those I haven't met, my name's Dave. I've come from a church in Leeds. Uh, I've left behind my wife, Rebecca, my daughter, Molly, son, Matthew, my parents-in-law, and their two dogs. Uh, so it would have been a busy time this morning. But we are going to look at this passage together. So let's pray as we come to God's Word. Gracious and loving Father, we thank you that you speak. We thank you that you've not left us ignorant, you've not left us in darkness, but you have spoken to us by your word and ultimately through your Son. And we pray that through your word as your Spirit works, we would see the Lord Jesus, we would see ourselves clearly, and we would worship him and be like him this morning. Amen. Well, I wonder whether you ever feel comfortable at church. I'm not talking about whether you like the seats or or whether you like the tea or coffee or whether you think that the temperature's right. I'm actually quite pleased to be here because our thermostat's broken at City. So they're either going to be absolutely freezing or absolutely boiling or possibly both. But I'm just wondering whether anything that's said at church makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe this is your first time here and you don't know yet. Maybe you've been coming here for years. I wonder whether anything makes you feel uncomfortable. Uh, We're looking at this section of Matthew's account of Jesus' life. I think you last looked at it a few weeks ago. And we, if you've come, we're partway through the most famous and the best sermon that has ever been preached. Uh, This is Jesus' sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look down in your Bibles, if you look down at 5 verse 1, you can see this is Jesus talking to his disciples, to to those who follow him. So other people are listening in, but he's talking to his disciples about life in his kingdom. So 5 verse 1 says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. And as we read this this sermon, it teaches us what exactly does it mean to be part of Jesus' kingdom? Or the language we might use, what does it mean to be a Christian? And is it something that's meant to make us feel comfortable? Okay, look down with me. Uh, Look down with me at the passage just before the passage today. Look at 5 verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, so your moral goodness, your, your good way of living, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I just want you to imagine what, for a moment what it was like to hear those things. I don't know what image you've got of the Pharisees in your mind, but don't think religious bogeyman. Think religious ninjas. Uh, these guys are the, the kind of the religious elites, the black belts in religion. And, and so to be more righteous than the Pharisees is to be incredibly righteous. That the, the Pharisees had gone to these great pains to interpret God's law, to read it and to, to put it into practice in a whole range of detailed ways. Make no mistake, Jesus is calling for extreme righteousness. 
unless you are better than the best, you're not good enough. And well, maybe you're sat there thinking, well, yes, okay, we know that those Jewish people had to be very, very good. You read all those laws. What a good job that I'm not Jewish. But look, who's teaching this sermon? It's Jesus. Who's he teaching it to? To his disciples. So if you're here and like me, you want to follow Jesus. Maybe you're here the first time and you're wondering about following Jesus. This is the uncomfortable truth. For those in Jesus' kingdom, our righteousness needs to be better than this religious elite. Oh, well, maybe you think, maybe it's all right. Well, I'll ease my discomfort because, I mean, the Pharisees weren't that great, were they? And neither the teachers of the law. Both of them ended up trying to kill Jesus. Well, they can't be that good. If that's what you're thinking, look down with me at verse 48. Do you see it there? This is Jesus' conclusion on this section. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See what Jesus is saying? Be perfect. That's pretty stark, isn't it? In terms of a high bar for being in Jesus' kingdom, that that is stratospheric, isn't it? That the target way of living for Christians, for those who would be in Jesus' kingdom, is absolute moral perfection. Anyone been perfect this week? Perhaps not. Perhaps you, like me, have been selfish, angry, greedy, lazy, just like me. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anyone feel uncomfortable? Could people like us really have a place in this kingdom? Jesus is showing us the standards of his kingdom. He he hasn't come to make it easier for his disciples. Jesus is showing what it looks like, that that he fulfills the Old Testament, that it all points and is read with him at the center of it. And maybe you read the Old Testament and you read some of the law and you think, well, that looks like really hard work. Jesus has not come to give us an easy ride. It, It says it here, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I got an email this week to, to, to go to a kind of talk of an evening. It was a kind of slightly pointless but interesting talk that I would really enjoy. Uh, Rebecca would really hate it. Uh, I thought about going, but I looked it up and there was, there was a snag. Now, at first it was miles away, but it was, it was in this really posh venue. And I looked up the venue and it had a massively strict dress code. There was a kind of big table of the, the things you could wear and the, exactly what you had. You had to wear a tie and that basically ruled it out for me. But, but Jesus is setting out the, the dress code for his kingdom. Not in terms of ties or, or skirts of a certain length. This is the moral dress code for Jesus' kingdom. And it is to be dressed with perfection, to be dressed with perfection. What does that actually mean? 
As this passage was read, we heard these, these six different areas that he picks up on. So anger, lust, divorce, oaths, vengeance, and love. Six aspects of life that we're called to be perfect in. And as we looked through them, did you see that Jesus is showing, just, just being perfect with our hands, just being perfect with what we do, is not enough. You saw this, this repeated way of saying it. You've heard that it was said, so you've heard these laws, but I say the laws with me at the center is heart perfection. Heart perfection, the center of our emotions, our thoughts, what we, what we think, what we reflect, and what we love. Be perfect in here. No, we're we're limited in time this morning. So rather than look at every single aspect of of these different ways of living, we're going to just touch today on anger. And that's going to be our kind of case study for what does kingdom life look like, for how radical Jesus' demands are. And that that will help you as you go away this week and, and you reflect on these other areas. I think there'll be a chance to look at some of them in your small groups this week. And to see, how does this work? Now, that means we're not going to look in detail at the other ones. Specifically, we're not going to look at divorce. I realize as I look around, I don't know you. I suspect in a church this size, there will be people affected by divorce. This is not everything the Bible says about divorce. It's a significant part. So what I would say, just as a a carry-out this morning, if you've been affected by divorce, if you're you read this and you're anxious, you want to know, please don't go away. Come and chat to one of the elders. They'd love to talk to you more about this. If you don't know who they are, come talk to me. Because that's so important to talk through properly. That We, we haven't got time for that this morning. We're going to focus here this morning on anger. So we're going to focus in then on verses 21 to 26. So grab that down in front of you. And we're going to look at that in two points. Okay, two points. So firstly, 21 to 22. Watch out. In Jesus' kingdom, heart murder is like murder. Watch out. In Jesus' kingdom, heart murder is like murder. This is Jesus' teaching on anger. This is what he's got to say, and it is totally uncompromising. That what goes on in our hearts and our mouths is as bad as what goes on with our hands. I would imagine that that most of us probably haven't killed anybody, though again, it's possible. But what Jesus is saying is that in our hearts and in our minds, each one of us has murdered people many, many times over. What is heart murder? Look at the verses. So Jesus makes this contrast between verse 21 and verse 22. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, so he's referring to the Old Testament and how they've been taught it. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. You think, yes, that's what we'd expect. Murderers should face justice. But look at the contrast. Anyone, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, will be subject to judgment. That those who face justice are not just those who physically kill people. The same justice awaits those who are angry with people. 
those who insult people, those who call people fools. That anger and hatred is heart murder. This is what happens when we shout at people or call people foolish or despise them in our hearts or get angry for a whole variety of reasons that in our hearts we mentally stab them to death. Heart murder is like murder. I'm ashamed to say that I'm not very good in traffic cues. I find it very, very hard to be patient. And in my heart, I'm just, I'm killing all those idiotic people in front of me. You've no right to be in front of me. And I wonder, have you had thoughts like that this week? Have you been angry with people this week? You don't have to say it out loud. But have you felt it in your heart that you've committed mental murder? In Jesus' kingdom, heart murder is like murder. And Jesus is warning us here that this attitude in our hearts of murder is, is what makes us just as liable for judgment as a physical murderer. Not just from human judgment. He, he talks about the court, the, the community justice of the Jewish elders there. But facing the judgment of God. Did you see that? That's so uncomfortable. That if you have ever called someone an idiot, even in your heart, you and me, we are liable for the judgment of God. If you have ever called someone an idiot, you are liable for the judgment of God because Jesus' standard is absolute perfection. Apparently, the the city around the world with the highest murder rate is Caracas in Venezuela. Now, I'd be be cautious about booking your holiday there. The murder rate in Caracas in Venezuela is about 100 times that of London. I wonder what would happen if we measured our heart murder rate here in, in Flitting. How many heart murders have we committed this week? I would guess the conviction rate would be 100%. How far that is from being perfect as God our Father is perfect. In Jesus' kingdom, heart murder is like murder. Well, how does Jesus have us respond? How should we live in God's kingdom? That's our second point. Do right. In Jesus' kingdom, seek reconciliation. Do right. In Jesus' kingdom, seek reconciliation. And so Jesus gives us these two illustrations, two examples. What does it look like to live perfectly, to avoid anger? It looks like making every effort for reconciliation. At home, at work, in any and every area we find ourselves in. I don't know, did you see what was interesting in verse 23? Just look at verse 23 a minute. And Jesus doesn't say... If you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that you've got something against your brother or sister, that's not what he says, is it? He says, if your brother or sister has something against you, this is what it is to seek reconciliation, to think, what have I done? What have I done that they've got something against me that I will make the first move? That anger is so serious that we think, Could I have made my brother or sister angry? And he talks about two areas, doesn't he? The religious area and the civil area. 
talks about the religious area. That we cannot, we cannot rightly worship God if we have an unreconciled relationship with a brother or sister. See, see that again? Because it's so serious. We cannot rightly worship God if we know a brother or sister is angry with us. That's hard hitting, isn't it? We cannot worship God rightly if we know a brother or sister is angry with us. Well, given that we don't, we don't physically worship in a temple, how might this apply? Well, certainly it applies in services, doesn't it? Is there someone here that you know that you have upset, that you have made angry, that you've not apologized to? That is going to hamper their worship and your worship. Just think what a beautiful community we would be if we were a church that sought reconciliation and forgiveness rather than hoping things would just go away. See how different Jesus' kingdom is to the world. The world outside says, forget it, don't worry about it, let it go, sweep it under the carpet. And Jesus says, no, deal with it. Make every effort for reconciliation. It applies in your, your, your quiet times at home, the times perhaps when you sit and you read your Bible. How easy to think that we're being, we're being super spiritual. And yet, how are relationships with your housemates or your husband or your wife or your children? How easy to think, I'm being holy, but has there been murder in your heart? Or have you, by your attitude, caused them to murder you in their heart? Go away and leave your Bible in your notebook and go and be reconciled. And then have your quiet time. And and that's the religious sphere. There's also the civil sphere. Being sued for something. Did you see it there? Verses 25 and 26. Uh, Now, I don't think he's kind of talking about a a sort of dispute with a company. You know, like you ring up your, your mobile phone company and argue with them. This is a personal dispute. You're having a personal dispute, and on the way to court, you bump into someone, the person with a charge against you, and Jesus is saying, now, now is the time to be reconciled. Sort things out now before it gets any worse. I wonder if there are any of us here with that that kind of long-running, lingering dispute with your neighbor. Maybe you park in such a way that you know really annoys the guy next door. Maybe your dustbins blow into their garden. And maybe for any of a thousand reasons that your neighbor is annoyed with you. And Jesus is saying, now, now is the time to seek reconciliation. Before it is too late. Because we know, I I know I've used trivial examples, but we know that it is deadly serious. How many families are ripped apart because of that thing that she said to him at that time all those years ago? How many of you know people, or maybe you yourself, have left a church because you just couldn't find that reconciliation? Oh, we had this, this experience at a church. We were out. There were two people in the church. They had a dispute. It, and it started off so trivial. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And it sucked in more and more people. And in the end, one of the the, the people had to be involved, had to be removed from the church because she refused to be reconciled. That there was no repentance from this anger. Do you see what he's saying? Make every effort for reconciliation, to swallow our pride, to humble ourselves. 
and make every effort for reconciliation. Well, let's just reflect for a moment. What is he saying on our hearts? What does this say to us when we get angry? What is driving your anger, your heart murder? So I mentioned that I find it easy to get angry when I'm stuck in a queue of traffic. Especially, you know, when you're merging and you're kind of doing this. You've been there. And I just wish that person there would just be swept away off the side of the motorway. And I think, why does that make me so angry? What's going on in my heart? And as I reflect on it, it's because of a lack of faith in God. That I think my time is so important. If I get held up, God won't be able to accomplish what he's doing. And so I get angry. And behind that is a lack of understanding of who God is. That I'm so important, God can't do it without me. And think how little that fits in with life in Jesus' kingdom. That my anxiety feeds my anger. It makes me entirely the opposite of life in Jesus' kingdom. That I will not trust him to deal with that anxiety. And I know how many times that I have committed heart murder. What is it that makes you angry? And how does that fit with life in Jesus' kingdom? Maybe you get angry when you think there is something that you are entitled to. And let me read to you from James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Maybe you're angry when you don't get that seat on the train, even though you think you ought to have one. Maybe you're angry when your evening is disturbed because you think you've a right to rest. Maybe you're angry when you get more homework or or, or more work in the office because you think they've no right to do this. That behind the anger is a sense of expectation. God should have entitled me to a night off in front of the TV. I think how little that fits with life in Jesus' kingdom. To recognize that we are poor in spirit. That we have no right to expect anything from God. That God gives to us freely because he loves us. That we're not angry because we don't get. We're so thankful when God is kind to us. What lies behind your anger? Maybe you get angry when your your sins and faults are pointed out. Maybe even now you are angry with someone in the church because they've pointed out, they've challenged you that you're doing something wrong. Maybe you're angry with the church leadership. Because you think they've spoken too frankly about your sin. Let let me read you a little poem that I found here. I, I really like this. Let me read this to you. Gladly, I admit my faults where God has poured his grace in. But when another points them out, I want to kick his face in. But you think, but how much that's us, isn't it? We get so angry. How dare you point out my sin? And how far from that is from from Jesus' kingdom value of mourning at sin. Of sorrow for sin. We, We get angry with others. We get angry with God even when he shows us our sin. How does your anger fit with the values of Jesus' kingdom?
How are you doing? You feeling uncomfortable yet? When you examine your heart, when you look at the heart standards of Jesus' kingdom, how are you doing? How am I doing? Because I know when I look at these that I have failed. Even this week, I know that I've made people angry with me. I know that I've been angry with others. I have been a heart murderer. And I wonder if you have as well. And okay, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, nope, this week I've not been angry. Well, we've only done one of the areas in the sermon. How has your heart done at looking at people lustfully this week? How has your heart done at doing exactly what you said you'd do this week? How have you done at loving people that you don't like? And each one, bang, bang, bang. And if you're anything like me, we're not doing very well. You may be feeling pretty uncomfortable, knowing how far we are from Jesus' standard of perfection. And maybe you're sitting there and you're wondering, is there any hope of being in Jesus' kingdom? And you think, is this all that the sermon is meant to do to make us realize that we are total failures? And at this point, we come right back to the start of the sermon. Because you see, right back at the start of the sermon, right back from verse 2 onwards, Jesus shows us the hope that lies at the center of his kingdom. That, that not only are kingdom people those who work as hard as they can to be perfect, that kingdom people are those who know how to respond when they realize they are not perfect. This is what Jesus is teaching. How do we respond when we read his words and we realize we are not perfect? When we realize that our failures and sins make us groan and look to him. Do you want to know what it's like to be a kingdom person? Maybe you're here and you're, you're not a Christian. You're thinking about this and you think the Christian life is just impossible. And maybe you're here and you are a Christian and you think the Christian life just sounds impossible. And what is the the center of Jesus' kingdom is knowing what to do when we are face to face with our own failure, with our own sin, with our own turning away from God and lack of perfection. Well, look down with me at chapter 5, verses 2 to 6. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Did you see the promises here? We know don't we? We know, if you've listened to any of this, we know that we are poor in spirit. That's what it is to be aware of our guilt and our sin and the fact that it deserves the judgment. We know that we mourn. That's what it is to be aware of our sin. We know that we're meek, that, that we cannot come with an expectation of demand because we know that we failed God and others. And we know, don't we, that we are a people who desperately hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. A hunger and thirst for the perfection that we don't have. Did you see the promises? Those who know their poor will receive the kingdom. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Yes, now in some ways we will see the fruit of that in our lives. That this sermon does rightly call us to work hard to make every effort to live right as God is right. We would expect to see heart change. But to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness means to recognize we're going to reach the end of our abilities. And we hear these words and we think, I cannot do this. I I cannot be perfect as God is perfect. And not because he set a standard that's somehow impossible, uh, it's inconceivable, but because I'm a sinner, because I in my heart reject God. I love me, not God. And so I will choose to get angry, to, to be lustful, to hate people because of what I want, because of my heart. And this sermon points to us needing a righteousness beyond our own. This is what it points to us. We need something more than we can do. A healing from outside of ourselves. The sermon is not just a message of try harder. That we need the one who is holy in the way that we're not. The one who is perfectly like God, his heavenly father. Perhaps you're sitting here today and all this has done is, has crushed you. It just bowed you down with the sin that you know you have. The selfish things that you know you've done. This Sermon on the Mount is part of the whole life of Jesus. There are these points right at the beginning where he shows how Jesus will bring these things. It is not just an extreme demand with no hope. The promise of the Christian faith is that in Jesus Christ... We are clothed with his righteousness. I talked at the beginning about being invited to that, that talk where you had to dress up perfectly smartly. The promise of the Christian life is that Jesus' perfection can clothe us. Let me read to you from Matthew 20. You don't need to turn it up. But it, it, Matthew writes that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is the heart of the Christian message of Jesus' kingdom. Not just a demand for total perfection. But a gift of a perfection from outside of ourselves. That where we failed, Jesus succeeded. That where we sinned, Jesus was perfect. That where we Mourn in his death and resurrection is our source of comfort. This is what it is to be in Jesus' kingdom, to be loved brothers and sisters of the king. When Jesus lived a perfect life and died a perfect death, it was to clothe his people in righteousness before God. That when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus. This is what it is to be in Jesus' kingdom. That those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. 
I'm going to close in prayer, a prayer of confession, of repentance. I'm going to ask for change and for forgiveness. If you'd like to pray this prayer with me, then please agree with an amen at the end. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we praise you because you are holy, because you are pure and perfect, because you do not put up with evil, but you bring justice. Yet we confess, Heavenly Father, that each one of us has done what is wrong, that we have loved what is wrong, that we in our hearts have not loved you, but we've loved ourselves. We're sorry for that. We're sorry for the times that we've loved ourselves and not our neighbor, the times we've loved ourselves and not you. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would forgive us, that you would change us, that you would, by your Spirit, make us live like you. Father, we pray that you would clothe us in the perfection of the Lord Jesus. We praise you for this mercy And we live in his kingdom. Amen. We're going to sing together a song that reminds us of the love of God.